the crafty Greek emperor, when he learned that Robert was gone to Italy, thought that it would be in his power to reduce the Normans while their leader was absent. He therefore, collecting a large body of troops, marched against them, and compelled them to fight a battle which they would have willingly avoided. In the beginning of the conflict, the Normans betrayed some weakness, and at the first onset, being under alarm on many accounts, were nearly overcome. For disheartened by the inferiority of their numbers and the absence of their successful leader, they had scarcely commenced the battle when they began to think of flight. While, however, Bohemund and his troops were in this state of hesitation and dismay, and in his anxiety, he fervently called upon God. He suddenly experienced the divine aid, and a voice from heaven sounded in his ears. Bohemund! Why do you shrink from the conflict? Fight it out bravely, for he who was your father's support will be yours also, if you trust in him and faithfully maintain his cause. The courage of the Normans was restored by these words, and pressing onwards, they charged the Greeks with energy, so that they were repulsed by this sudden attack, and taking to flight, left an immense booty to the foreigners, who were in great need of supplies. Upon his return from Tuscany, Giscar found his troops highly rejoicing at their success, and he, also exulting at so signal a triumph, returned thanks to God. Bohemund, who had been wounded in the battle, was sent for his cure to the surgeons of Salerno, whose reputation for skill in medicine was established throughout the world. Sikel Gaita, wife of Robert Giscar, was daughter of Guaymar, Duke of Salerno, and sister of Gisulf, who was deprived of his duchy by the ambitious usurpation of his brother-in-law. This princess conceived a violent hatred of Bohemund, her stepson, knowing that as he was much braver and superior in sense and worth, her son Roger would forfeit in his favor the duchy of Apulia and Calabria, to which he was heir. In consequence, she prepared a deadly potion and sent it to the physicians of Salerno, among whom she had been brought up, and by whom she had been instructed in the use of poisons. The physicians lent themselves to the wishes of their lady, and gave the deadly poison to Bohemond, whom it was their duty to heal. Having taken it, he was reduced to death's door, and instantly dispatched a messenger to his father informing him of his danger. The shrewd duke became immediately aware of his wife's treachery, and calling her to him in great distress, thus interrogated her. Is my lord Bohemund still alive? To which she replied, I don't know, my lord. Upon which he said, Bring me a copy of the Holy Gospels and a sword. On their being brought, he took the sword and swore as follows upon the sacred writings. Listen to me, Sigelgaita. I swear by this holy gospel that if my son Bohemund dies of the malady under which he labors, I will plunge this sword into your chest. Alarmed at this threat, she prepared a sure antidote and quickly sent a messenger with it to the physicians at Salerno, who had been her instruments for poisoning Bohemund, urging them with prayers and promises to extricate her from the peril to which she was exposed. The physicians, learning that the treachery was detected, prayed that the duke's terrible threats might not be put in execution, and used every effort which their skill in the art of medicine suggested to restore the young prince to health. Through God's blessing, 
who designed him for the scourge of the Turks and Saracens, the enemies of the faith. Bohemon recovered. But such had been the virulence of the poison that his countenance was pallid all the rest of his life. Meanwhile, the treacherous and wily woman reflected within herself, in a state of great alarm, that if her messenger should meet with any delay in crossing the sea, and the sick prince should die before he arrived, there would be no escaping the death which her husband had sworn to inflict on her. She therefore devised another murderous and execrable scheme. Sad to say, she gave poison to her husband. And as soon as he began to sicken, having no doubt of the inevitable result, she assembled her attendants and the rest of the Lombards in the middle of the night, and hurrying to the seashore, embarked with her partisans in the swiftest ships, burning the rest so that she might not be pursued by the Normans. Having reached the coast of Apulia, one of the knights who served her landed privately and hastening to Salerno by night, suddenly appeared before Bohemond, saying, Rise quickly and fly and save yourself. On his inquiring the reason, the bearer of the tidings replied, Your father has perished, and your mother has landed in Apulia. She is hurrying here to seek your death. Bohemond, on hearing this alarming news, was greatly agitated, and mounting a donkey, clandestinely withdrew from the city, and flew to Jordan, Prince of Capua, his cousin, by whom he was kindly received, and thus escaped from the machinations and threats of his stepmother. She was much mortified, on arriving at Salerno, that she had been outwitted by the object of her persecutions. Her son Roger, known as Borsa, the Purse, secured the succession to the rich duchy of his ancestors lying on this side of the sea. The Normans who found themselves in a foreign country, with their great and brave leader in the utmost peril from woman's wiles, were overwhelmed with anxieties. They felt also that the strength of their army was diminished by the defection of the Lombards, who had secretly departed in service of their mistress, and that they could not return to Italy without great difficulty and delay, as their ships were burnt. The noble duke therefore summoned to his side his kinsmen and chief counselors, and inquired of them what they proposed to do. But as they all whispered together, and were unable to propose any certain plan, he thus addressed them. The divine vengeance scourges us for our sins, and punishes us for our ambition. The Lord justly chastises his servants, and plainly teaches us that worldly glory is not to be coveted. Let us give him thanks for all the favors which he has vouchsafed to confer upon us, and implore him with our whole hearts to always show mercy to us. We were sprung from poor and obscure parents, and leaving the barren fields of the Cotentin, and homes ill-supplied with the means of existence, we set out for Rome, and it was not without great difficulty and alarm that we passed beyond that place. Afterwards, by God's aid, we obtained possession of many great cities, but we ought to attribute our success not to our own valor or merits, but to divine providence. Now at length, for the sins of the natives, we have wrested from the empire of Constantinople as much country as it has taken us fifteen days to penetrate. You know well that I was invited to undertake the protection of the Emperor Michael who was unjustly driven from his throne by his subjects, my daughter having been lawfully betrothed to his son. 
I had determined, if it pleased God, that Constantinople, which is possession of an unwarlike people, abandoned to pleasure and lasciviousness, should be subjugated to Catholic warriors who would deliver Jerusalem, God's holy city, from the Turks, and expelling the infidels by their victorious arms, enlarge the bounds of Christendom. It was for this purpose that I undertook so vast an enterprise, so perilous a conflict. The mysterious will of Almighty God has otherwise ordered. David formed the design of building the temple at Jerusalem to God's honor, but God decreed that this should be accomplished with great triumph by his son, Solomon. So I conceive that my enterprise will be completed in future years, and the fruit of my labors will one day appear, and they will be profitably cited to posterity as an incitement to the like virtues. Receive, then, brave men, prudent counsel, and do not lose your former courage, which I have often proven in difficulties and dangers. I am but a single warrior, and mortal, as others, but you are many, and by the goodness of God, in the possession of many advantages. You have performed great actions which are published far and near. Ancient history affords no example of greater achievements wrought by a small number of obscure men than those which by God's help you have accomplished. Choose among yourselves the bravest and wisest of your number, and appoint him your leader. Do not evacuate this rich country, which you have made your own by such exertions and in so short a time. My son, Bohemond, if life and health are spared to him, will soon fly to your succor. The Duke having said this, and more to the same purpose, Peter, a Frenchman, and others his friends, after keenly canvassing the Duke's proposal, thus replied, There is much danger and great difficulty in the injunctions you lay on us. Our enemies are countless, while we are few in number, and we have opposed to us a powerful and sagacious emperor, to whom, at your request, we have often given grave offense. We are unable to resist his prowess and widespread power, for his rule extends over many kingdoms and nations. Would to God we could return in peace and safety to the homes from which we departed. The duke groaned deeply on hearing these sentiments, and began calling upon God with tears and lamenting his son with bitter grief. Alas, what sorrows surround me in my misfortunes. In times past I have done much injury, and many of my actions have been unjust. Now the punishment which I have long deserved has accumulated upon me. Most high God, spare me! Merciful God, have pity upon me, a sinner. Almighty God, save your people whom I have led here. O oh, my son Bohemond, you noble warrior who may be compared in arms to Achilles or Roland the Frank. Are you still alive or are you detained for your destruction? What has happened to you? What has become of your proven courage? If you were in health as I left you when I parted for Italy, you would quickly be here and take possession of this rich region of Bulgaria, conquered by our arms. 
For I feel assured that if you live, such is your resolution, that if divine providence allowed you to be present at my death, you would, by God's help, never cede the rights I have gained by arms. Courage, my valiant comrades. Consider carefully among yourselves, and weigh well that you are far away from your own homes. Recollect what great deeds the Normans have wrought, and strive therefore not to lower your position by the loss of your former magnanimity. Choose one of yourselves, as I said before, by mutual agreement, and retain with honor the fertile provinces which you have now gained. Of all those who were present at this council, no one dared to assume the command, all preferring to provide for their safety by flight. At length, in the year of our Lord, 1085, Robert Giscar, the illustrious Duke of Apulia, a man whose equal can scarcely be found in our times, having confessed and been absolved from his sins and fortified by receiving the Holy Communion as the hour of death approached, was taken from the world, not struck down by a warrior's weapon, but infected by a woman's crime, as at first Adam was driven out of paradise, not the victim of war, but of poison. As soon as he was dead, the Normans preserved his body in salt, and asked permission to depart in peace to their own country. Though the emperor rejoiced at being freed from his formidable enemy, he still wept with much emotion over the deceased duke, who had never turned his back in battle. He therefore gave his willing consent to those who desired it, that all his household might return to Italy with the corpse of their prince, while offering high pay to others who were willing to remain and enter his service. Thus those who had vigorously attacked the Greek monarch afterwards faithfully served him. The rest, returning to Apulia, carried the body of Giscar to Venosa, and there buried it with great lamentations in the monastery of the Holy Trinity. In Apulia, the Normans had bitter divisions among themselves, and brothers waged with each other worse than civil wars. Roger Borsa had sole possession with his mother of the Duchy of Calabria, to the great grief of his brother Bohemond, who lived in exile at the court of Jordan, Prince of Capua. In consequence, with the aid of Jordan and his other relations and friends, he took up arms against his brother and began to recover part of his father's territories, which he had assisted him in conquering. His brother and stepmother could not withstand this attack and were compelled to listen to prudent advice from their friends. By the persuasions of Roger, Count of Sicily, they made peace and ceded to Bohemond, Bari, and Toronto, with two other cities and a number of towns. The Normans prudently connecting themselves by alliances of this sort are masters, to this day, of great part of Italy, which Drogo, Humphrey, and above all, Robert Giscar, conquered. Hello and welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 2.13. Peace and trust can win the day. Let's start with a handful of corrections. 
Uh, first off, last time I said that Raymond of Saint-Gilles' third wife, uh, Elvira or Elvira of Castile, would never return to Europe. That is completely wrong. She would outlive Raymond and return to her native Castile at some point in the early 1100s. Only Raymond and Adamar of Lepuy would be kicking the bucket in the east. Elvira would actually end up marrying Roger II, first king of Sicily, Bohemond's cousin. And speaking of Bohemond's cousins, I also said that Raymond's second wife, Matilda, was Bohemond's niece. She was not. She was his cousin. I mixed up her father, Roger, Count of Sicily, with Bohemond's brother, also named Roger, usually called Roger Borsa to avoid the type of trap I fell into. Roger, Count of Sicily, was Bohemond's uncle, not his brother, and so his daughter Matilda was Bohemond's cousin, not his niece. And now a pronunciation correction. I noticed that in our last episode, I have been consistently saying co-sanguineous instead of consanguineous. Why I've been doing this is anyone's guess. So concerned about pronouncing my Latin correctly that I forgot how to speak freaking English. I also mispronounced the French word dignité and the Latin word fierat. Oh well. Alright, corrections out of the way. Let's get started. Today, we continue our who's who of the future Uchimer rulers, focusing on the Italo-Norman powerhouse, Bohemond of Tarento. This was originally going to be one episode, but it developed into two. Today, we're going to be focusing on the struggle between Bohemond of Tarento and his half-brother, Roger Borsa, following the death of their father, Robert Giscar. We're also going to use this struggle as an opportunity to explore how the Italo-Normans, particularly the Otvio family, use their kinship dynamics to achieve their aims. The study of family networks and clan identity is an area that I've been stumbling upon multiple times in my research, and it's something I hadn't really encountered or worked with before. I think it gives us a real fresh look at what was really going on with the Oatville conquest of southern Italy and Sicily, an experience that foreshadows the family networks we'll be encountering in the Levant. Now, this isn't our first time tangling with Bowman of Trento or the Italo-Normans. We've already hung out with them back in episode 1.2 and 1.13. In case you didn't hear those episodes, here is a quick previously on History of the Utremer for you. The Normans were northern Frenchmen of originally Scandinavian origin. They had been given the region of Normandy during the Viking era in return for fealty to the French king. Because they were from the frigid north, they were called literally Northmen, Nordmen in Old Norse or Normanth in Old French, eventually becoming modern French Normand and English Norman. In the 11th century, these Normans began to look for work as mercenaries in southern Italy and Sicily, a region known in Italian as Il Mezzogiorno, which, like the French term Le Midi, also means midday, and also stems from an association between the south and the position of the sun at noon. At the time, Il Mezzogiorno was home to Lombards, Greeks, and Muslims, and subject to meddling from the various larger powers surrounding the region. Over the decades, one Norman family in particular rose to prominence, the eight sons of a lesser noble named Tancred Oatville from the Cotentin Peninsula in northwestern Normandy. This brought them into conflict with both the Byzantine Romans, who considered it their rightful territory, and the city of Rome under the papacy 
as well as the Holy Roman Emperor of the Germans, who ruled northern Italy, more or less. All three of these figures would play crucial roles in the development of the Normans as they fought and allied with each other in a square dance of military alliances. During the latter half of the 11th century, the brothers Oatville used this chaos as a ladder and managed not only to consolidate their hold over southern Italy, but also to finish the job the Byzantines had failed at decades earlier and eject the Muslims from Sicily. Taking advantage of the fact that both the Zirids in the Maghreb and the Fatimids in Egypt were too busy putting out fires at home to help the Sicilians out. For the Oatvilles, though, family was of primordial importance, and the kinship dynamics that played out in the clan greatly shaped the nature of their conquest. By the late 1050s, the Oatville clan was headed up by Robert Giscar of Oatville, Tancred's sixth son. Giscar had an issue, though. His marriage to an Apulian woman named Alberada was no longer politically advantageous, so he arranged for it to be declared <clears throat> consanguineous so that he could marry a more politically advantageous match, the Lombard noblewoman Sikelgaita, who, if we're to believe historians, was a fierce warrior in her own right. However, Giscard's divorce appears to have been amicable, and shortly after, Alberada actually married another Oatville. Giscar's nephew, Richard of Oatville. And when she died, at a very old age apparently, she was even accorded a spot in the Oatville family mausoleum, at the Abbey of Santissima Trinita, which still stands to this day in the city of Venosa, Italy. Her tomb reads, The wife of Giscar, Alberada lies in this tomb. If you seek her son, Ganosina has him. About her son... Before their divorce, Giscar and Alberada had had two children, a daughter named Emma and a son who had been baptized Mark, but because of his enormous strength and size, was almost exclusively known by his nickname, the one his father had given him at birth, the name of an obscure mythical giant, Bohemund. But Giscar and his second wife would have over eight children, the oldest, a daughter, Matilda, was married to the son of the Count of Barcelona. But the second was a son, named Roger. In 1073, when Giscar fell ill, Sigel Gaita ensured that her son was recognized as the Duke's heir in Italy, leaving Bohemund, his firstborn, with nothing. However, it's clear that Giscar valued his eldest son, and the search to find some sort of proper inheritance for Bohemund may have been one of the factors that motivated Robert Giscar's invasion of the Byzantine Roman Empire. See, while Sigilgaita's influence was important in Italy, making it impossible to pass over her son Roger, it wouldn't be that important in conquered Balkan territory. Now, officially, the invasion was in response to the deposition of the previous emperor. Michael, or Mikhail, Vukas, who had arranged a marriage between his son and Giscar's youngest daughter. When Mikhail was tossed aside, this meant that Giscar's daughter lost her chance at becoming an empress one day, and gave Giscar enough legal cover to invade Byzantium in 1081. However, the situation in Constantinople was in flux, and as Giscar was preparing to cross the Adriatic, the Romans gained a new usurper emperor, 
Alexios was young and hungry, and he was going to prove a much more formidable challenge than the petty Lombard and Berber nobles Giscar was used to crushing underfoot. Despite losing catastrophically at the Battle of Dorachium, allowing the Normans to gain a foothold in the Balkans, Alexios proved indefatigable and made the Normans pay in blood for every inch they took. He also coordinated an alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, who invaded Rome, the seat of power of Giscar's former enemy turned key ally, Pope Gregory VII. Giscar was forced to return to Italy to aid the Pope, leaving his son Bohemund in command, while he went off to sack and burn down Rome. Bohemund struggled to maintain the same discipline as his father, and the emperor began to turn the tide against the invaders. The whole endeavor fell apart in 1085, when a disease, either dysentery or maybe malaria, ravaged the Norman camp. Bohemund got so sick that he had to return to Italy for medical treatment. Uh, despite what the opening says, he was not wounded in battle. We'll talk about the validity of the opening in a second here. Anyway, Giscar's eldest son was on the other side of the Adriatic, when his father, who was on his way back to the Balkans, died following six days of fever on July 17, 1085. Shortly after arriving on the island of Kefalonia, just off the western coast of the Greek mainland. The small port village where the 72-year-old terror of the world breathed his last still bears a Hellenized form of his sobriquet, Piscardo. So we heard a version of how all this went down in the opening from the English historian Orderic Vitalis. And when I say English here, I actually mean it. Orderic was born in Norman England in 1075, but he was not a Norman, and even though his father was French, he was born and grew up in Shropshire, and appears to have been very proud of his Englishness. In fact, his nickname, Vitalis, was given to him by French-speaking monks in Normandy, who couldn't pronounce his foreign name. In his writing, he refers to himself as Ordericus Vitalis Angligena, Orderic Vitalis, the English-born. However, Orderic is not to be trusted. He wasn't anywhere near the Mediterranean when all this went down, and even though he's mostly credible, especially for things happening closer to home, in this case, he might have fallen for some propaganda, or made some shit up. Every single one of these medieval historians has their own little agenda. So if he tells you anything fucking different, he's a liar and a fucking snake. But as always, even the propaganda can tell us a lot about what was going on here. So let's go through some of Orderic's claims. Starting with the whodunit. Did Giscar's wife actually poison her stepson and husband? Eh, probably not. As the whole spiel about Adam and the apple at the end hints at, there's an undertone of misogyny here, which Orderic makes more explicit with the adjectives he uses to describe Sikilgaita. There's also faint traces of the hand of a master propagandist at work. But we'll get to that a bit later. In reality, the poisoning of the Giscar especially is unlikely to have happened, especially not in the way Orderic reports it. Far from secretly departing and burning the rest of the Norman fleet before the last stage of the murder she'd orchestrated, Sigilgaita was actually present when Giscar died, and Roger Borsa was not far. He'd been leading a siege of Corfu nearby and the Norman army actually swore their loyalty to her son, Borsa, on the spot. But Orderic's soap opera does contain a seed of truth. 
because Sigilgaita definitely had a motive for poisoning Bohemond. Despite his quasi-illegitimate status after the repudiation of his mother, Bohemond still had a very strong chance of robbing his younger half-brother of his inheritance. For multiple reasons. Firstly, the Italo-Normans didn't have a very clear succession policy. Robert Giscar was the latest in a line of brothers inheriting from brothers, and in fact, Giscar's younger brother is going to be very important in a bit here. Secondly, Orderic is pretty much right when he says Bohemond was braver and superior to his younger half-brother, Roger Borsa, whose nickname Borsa, by the way, is Italian for purse, and is reported to have been given to him because of a habit he had of fiddling with his money bag when he was nervous, which was apparently always. As historian Giorgios Theotokis puts it in Bohemond of Toronto, Crusader and Conqueror, quote, It was because of astute political reasons that Giscard chose to repudiate his first wife, Alberada of Bonalbergo, in favor of Sigelgaita, the daughter of Prince Guaymar IV of Salerno, thus automatically demeaning Alberada's son Bohemond to the status of a bastard. It would be a mistake to assume that Bohemond was therefore ostracized from the political scene of Norman Italy. As Alberata remained an acknowledged spouse of Giscar and for that reason part of the extended Oatville clan, Bohemond's paternity and his right to be fully associated with his father were also never challenged. Bohemond was very much trusted by his father, who saw in him a capable and charismatic military leader, who also enjoyed the loyalty of the army. Borsa, in contrast, had not been seriously tested on the battlefield, but he had on his side the legitimacy of his mother's kin. End quote. It wasn't only his mother's legitimacy that gave Roger Borsa an edge against Bowman, though. It was also her actions. Even if the poisoning's not true, which it likely isn't, Fucking snake! It is evident that Sikilgaita was willing to go to extreme lengths to ensure her son's political position. In Sikilgaita of Salerno, Amazon or Trophy Wife, historian Valerie Eads explores the claims that Sikilgaita fought on the battlefield, beside her husband, focusing on the Battle of Dyrrhachium in 1081, which was written about by Byzantine born in the purple princess historian Anna Komnini. If you recall, her account of the battle was the source for a good chunk of the opening to episode 1.13, and it includes Sigilgaita's participation as a commander. Earlier historians writing in the 19th and 20th centuries, with the less-than-feminist, to put it lightly, biases of their era, often dismissed Anna Komnini's inclusion of Sigilgaita. Eads, however, comes to the conclusion that this description was more likely than not accurate. Sigilgaita's participation was not only key to ensuring Lombard support for Robert Giscar, but also key to ensuring that Giscar didn't choose to favor his firstborn son. As she puts it, quote, Another element is her determination to ensure Roger Borsa's succession to all of his father's patrimony. Robert had repudiated his first wife, but the son of that marriage, Boeman, was a grown man and with his father on the 1081 campaign. Roger had a claim to his father's position as Duke of Apulia and Calabria, but his status there was less clear-cut. It is not necessary to repeat melodramas or attempted plots and poisonings to understand why Sigilgaida would have risked her life to be present. It was the best way to protect Roger's interests. 
to ensure that Robert did not decide to provide for Bohemond, now technically illegitimate, at the expense of her son. Anna Komnini tells how her father's well-laid plans broke his opponents. The Celts were running into the sea to get away, until a monstrous woman, more frightful than Roman battle lines or Turkish archers, drove them back into the fight. The battle was a victory for Sikilgaita, and Robert, and for Roger. That she was present, properly armored, to oversee the actions of her and her son's troops, and to ensure that they acquitted themselves at least as well as Bohemond's, that sounds like the real thing. End quote. Sikilgaita's political importance would continue to be relevant when her son succeeded in inheriting his father's realm. In Band of Brothers, kin dynamics of the Otvils and other Normans in southern Italy and Syria, circa 1030 to circa 1140, historian Francesca Patrizzo explores the interesting amount of power that Sikilgaita had during the reign of first her husband and then the reign of her son. Quote, Sikilgaita's is what we might call a faux regency, which we might more correctly describe as a form of borderline joint rule with her son, Borsa. Marrying into the family of the princes of Salerno had lent Giscar, until then a successful robber baron, a certain amount of legitimacy in southern Italy, anchoring his power to one of the long-established Lombard principalities and securing him the support of a powerful king group. This was reflected not only in Giscar's prioritizing of Sikilgaita's offspring over Bohemond, but also in her position during his reign. Sikilgaita is portrayed as an active participant in Giscar's power, to an extent in which other spouses of the era were not. This is borne out by the couple's jointly issued charters, in which Sikilgaita figures beside her husband as an entity in her own right. Dukisa, not only as his wife, but also as the bearer of a certain amount of family influence. This influence would continue to bear its fruits at Borsa's accession. Born around 1060, Borsa was either 24 or 25 when his father died, already abundantly of age for the time, and theoretically more than capable of upholding his own claim. Given Bohemond's popularity and military prowess, and the common revolts endured by Giscar, it is scarcely surprising that Borsa would need his capable relatives to buttress his rule. What is peculiar is not, therefore, that his accession to the duchy was protected by his male relatives, but rather the fact that for the first few years of his reign, he appears to have issued charters and most plausibly ruled together with his mother. Not only do we have Sikilgaita still bearing the title of Dukisa she had enjoyed when her husband was alive in her son's charters, we twice have her issuing charters under the title Sikalgaita Dux, which suggests rule in her own right, rather than vicariously for anybody else. The reason why this happened is at once immediately clear and in need of further exploration. Chalendon's immensely influential history of the Normans in the South established the predominant view of Roger Borsa as a weak, ever so slightly pathetic man much inferior to both his brilliant father and his much more dashing brother. It is undoubted that Borsa could not boast the same abilities as them. Even William of Apulia, who was writing for him, described as Borsa's most heroic deed his cool temper during a storm at sea. It is fair to say that Borsa was not militarily strong, and that better warriors' help was necessary to keep him in power. This does not immediately explain why it was necessary for his mother to rule jointly with him. 
When Giscard had married her circa 1058, Sigelgaita had been a member of one of the most important Lombard kin groups, and her brother, Gisulf II, had been Prince of Salerno. But after 1077, when Gisulf went in exile after losing his city to Giscard, this was no longer the case. Borsa himself was the representative of the Lombard prince's descendants. I would argue that Sigelgaita represented something far closer to home, a direct link to his father's rule. Sigelgaita was not only a prestigious bride, but someone whom Giscard had systematically associated to his reign. The two often traveled together, they signed charters together, she was left in charge of the siege of Trani in 1080, she accompanied Giscard in his final campaign, and brought his body home. At least once, Sigelgaita and Giscard were jointly acknowledged in a charter as duques. While these instances do not make a clear enough picture to outright state that Sigelgaita had ruled jointly with Giscard, her role was both active and well-publicized. The endurance of her power might well have helped with continuity from an administrative point of view. It seems self-evident that Borsa had been chosen as heir because of his mother rather than because of any intrinsic quality, especially given the young age at which he was first indicated as such. Sikilgaita may well have felt that her son's inheritance was contingent on her own power, and her use of the title dukes surely suggests that she was perceived to hold rights of her own. She was not a regent as much as somebody enjoying an odd but well-documented position of co-rule with a son who, even if of age, needed her support. End quote. The fact that Sigelgaita's legitimacy and consistent advocacy for her son's rights was so crucial to support for the younger son meant that she became a valuable target. If Bohemond could discredit her in some way, that would have a serious blowback effect on her son, who was not capable of standing on his own. But how to do that? Here we actually have a possible explanation for the poisoning story. Bohemon is gonna be tied up in many propaganda campaigns over the coming episodes. Fucking snake! So it's definitely within the realm of possibility that Orderic's sources for these events chose to tell a story that was favorable to Bohemon. Orderic's also writing a few decades after the First Crusade, by which point Bohemon was a veritable hero and superstar, so his version of events might be shaped by that context as well. There are two final pieces of Orderic's narrative that I want to talk about before we move on. The first concerns the final fate of the Norman invasion force. Orderic says that Alexios was moved to tears by the death of Robert Giscar, and then not only permitted the invasion force to leave in peace, but offered them employment in the Imperial Army. While the tears, if true, were likely those of a crocodile, the job offer was sincere. While most of the army returned, not as Orderic says after having their ships burned by Sigelgaita, but instead under Sigelgaita, I mean her son Roger Borsa's banner, a sizable chunk stayed behind and entered the service of Alexios Komnenos. This sort of offer was not at all uncommon for the Romans. This is in large part how the Romans obtained the Turkmen and Pechenegh forces that the First Crusade narrators describe defeating invading armies, and then offering the survivors a job. It was all very Tony Montana and Scarface. So long, man. Have a good trip. Fuck you! What about Ernie?
want a job, Ernie? Sure, Tony. Okay, then you call me tomorrow. In this case, many Normans, as well as, assumedly, Lombards and Sicilian Muslims, took Alexios up on the offer. Even high-ranking members of Giscard's force joined up, including his son. No, not Bohemond or Roger Borsa, but a younger son named Guy, also a son of Sikogaita. Guy might have felt that his older brothers were about to tear his homeland to shreds and sensed that seeking his fortune elsewhere was a smart move, because that's exactly what he did. Guy joined the court of Alexios Komnenos. Anna Komnini says that Guy was won over before his father's death by the prospect of a marriage alliance and a high rank in the Byzantine court. It's more likely that he joined up after his father's death, though. There are reasons to mistrust Anna's timeline in this case. We'll get to that in the future. Fucking snake! Because Guy will be coming back. And this is not the last time he'll be involved with a Balkan invasion, either. The second thing I want to talk about is Bowman's actions following his father's death. It seems Orderic is somewhat better informed here. Bowman did indeed flee to the court of his cousin, Jordan of Capua, Jordan was a Norman, but not an Oatville per se. His mother was Robert Giscard's sister, but his father was from the Drengo family. A Norman family that had once been rivals to the Oatvilles, but whose star had dimmed, and had only managed to hold control over the Principality of Capua. While the Oatvilles took the rest of Il Mezzogiorno. Jordan's decision to shelter and aid Bowman was interesting, because he was married to Sikilgaita's sister so you would think that he'd more naturally make an alliance with that camp. But Jordan sided with Bowman, probably because he felt that an Oatville civil war would lead to an increased chance for his principality to remain independent, and maybe even grow. Roger Borsa had his own allies, however. Not only his mother, but crucially, his uncle. If his mother, Sikilgaita, was key to Borsa having any claim to becoming his father's successor, then his uncle Roger was key to Borsa actually making good on that claim. Bowman was no match for his uncle Roger. Geoffrey Manaterra, who's writing for Roger, describes the Count of Sicily as his nephew's whip, which Borsa used to beat his opponents into submission. Clearly, Roger had no issue being seen as his nephew's subordinate. It actually put him in the role of the power behind the throne, which was a state of affairs he seemed more than happy to accept. We first introduced Roger, Count of Sicily, back in episode 1.13. He was a younger brother of Robert Giscard, probably the youngest brother of the bunch. When he arrived in southern Italy, he took up a very common role for younger brothers, one that Giscard himself had played years earlier, that of lieutenant. It was he who led the forces that invaded, and after 30 years of continuous warfare, finally succeeded in wrenching Sicily from its Muslim emirs. Roger and Robert's relationship was rocky, though, especially early on. Roger frequently rebelled against his older brother, but this pattern of rebellion and reconciliation appears to have actually been common for the Oatville brothers. Petrizzo, in the same work I quoted earlier, describes the relationship between the two brothers in the following way. Quote, the mechanism by which Roger asserted his usefulness, and at the same time, his potential as a threat that needed to be reconciled, was the same which Giscard had employed with Humphrey. What we may call embattled negotiation. The very concrete demonstration of a junior's ability 
and an assertion of his worthiness. If, on the one hand, senior members of the family were the gateway to land, men, and administrative power, on the other hand, the junior ones provided the necessary stand-ins and aids to delegate power to in the ever-expanding Oatville Dominions. Rebellion on the part of a junior, therefore, should not always be interpreted as a desire to supplant or topple his elder, without whom the junior's prospects would collapse, but rather as a way of affirming one's independence and potential, the only useful tool in negotiating with a much stronger counterpart. End quote. This kind of embattled negotiation, in which a member of the family rebelled against another to get a better deal, was not unique to the first generation of Oatvilles either. It seems to have also characterized Bohemund's quote-unquote rebellion after his father's death. And it will also come to characterize Bohemund's relationship with his own right-hand man, but we'll come to that in the future. Now, Jeffrey Malaterra writes about the situation after Robert Giscard's death in the following way. Quote, the whole of Apulia and Calabria were in confusion, for the brothers Roger and Bohemund quarreled among themselves, both seeking the ducal office, and many people sought their own advantage, looking to profit first from one and then from the other. End quote. Malaterra, that feels weird, Malaterra indicates that immediately after his father's death, with the support of his cousin Jordan of Capua, Bohemund began to raid in southern Apulia, the little heel of the Italian peninsula, until March of 1086, when, with their uncle playing peacemaker, the two brothers came to an agreement. Bohemund would receive control of a sizable chunk of territory in the heel of Italy, centered around the town of what was then known as Tarento, hence Bohemund's title of Bohemund of Tarento, but is now known as Taranto. However, in 1087, we once again have records of Bohemund raiding, this time to the north of the Principality of Toronto. And then, a few months later, in 1088, there's a sigil that appears to confirm Bohemund is Prince of Taranto, though the validity of this sigil has been questioned in the last couple of years. Towards the end of 1088, there's more raiding from Bohemund. And then, finally, in 1089, we hear that the brothers have reconciled. Bohemund has now received the city of Bari, just north of his territory the richest and most important city in all of southern Italy. With a port that connected it to Venetian, Balkan, Tunisian, and Egyptian trade. After this, the rebellion ceases entirely, with the exception of a slight flare-up in 1093, when rumors spread that Roger Borsa had died. But basically, from 1089 on, Bohemund would continue to lend his aid to his brother, and rule his little principality of Taranto, a principality that would actually exist up until the 15th century. However, Malaterra's account, and that of Orderic Vitalis, which state that Bohemund was seriously looking to remove his brother from power and take the ducal office for himself, might be misrepresenting events. A liar and a fucking snake! One key piece of evidence that we can look to once again are charters. Charters signed in the years after Robert Giscard's death show, unsurprisingly, Roger Borsa named as the Duke. But interestingly, Bohemund is often named as a witness and acknowledged as the brother of the Duke. These documents and how they refer to the Brothers Oatville are evidence for a working relationship in the administration of Apulia and Calabria, not a civil war. So what gives? Well, 
The sequence of events here doesn't really line up with a concentrated attempt by Bohemond to seize the ducal office. There are no serious battles or even attempts to strike at the core areas of Borsa's reign. And there's a start and stop rhythm to Bohemond's rating that doesn't make sense if he was really trying to cripple his brother. No, what it seems like Bohemond's really doing is raising Cain to prove he can be a thorn in his baby brother's side and tip the negotiating table to his advantage. This becomes especially evident when you place it into the context of how previous Oatville brothers had interacted. As Petrizzo puts it, quote, With Roger and Giscar, and then Giscar's sons, we see played out in full and on a bigger stage the patterns of family conquest and family reconciliation which we have discussed until now. An elder brother using his junior as a second, heir apparent, and ally. The junior rebelling in an act of embattled negotiation to demonstrate his worth and drive a hard bargain, and being rewarded and reconciled with lands. The difficulties of shifting into vertical inheritance and the importance of a faithful, well-rewarded uncle in the process. These successful partnerships had far-reaching consequences. Chief of all, the establishment of Roger and Robert's descendants as the rulers of southern Italy, the chief potentates in the region, and the ones among whom the stakes would be higher. The success of family, the natural-born warband of the Oatville, achieved its peak in their tight network. And even beyond them, when Boema needed a second-in-command to follow him east, he turned to Tancred and his younger brother William, the sons of his sister Emma. While the extraordinary success enjoyed by the eight sons of Tancred of Oatville was contextual to the fraught, unique situation they found at their arrival in southern Italy, the patterns of behavior they developed there were anything but coincidental. The sheer breadth and endurance of their kin network allowed for tried and tested repetition. End quote. We've spent a while on the family dynamics here, but it's not only because they're important to understanding Bowman in the 1090s, but also to understanding the type of political structure that will become the foundation of the future Principality of Antioch. Now, a year before Bohemond ended his rebellion of sorts in 1089, the bishop Odo of Châtillon had been acclaimed Pope, taking the papal name Urban II. Urban's mentor and predecessor Gregory had, even if he'd once planned a holy war against them, eventually come around to see the Oatvilles as useful allies, and he died in Salerno, Giscard's de facto capital. Urban seemed eager to reestablish ties with the Oatville boys. Given the fact that he did not hold Rome, that had been in the hands of the anti-Pope Clement since Gregory had been expelled from the city in 1085, Urban was going to need some serious firepower on his side. Now, Borsa had kind of fucked up here. Between Gregory, who died in 1085, and Urban, who was elected in 1088, there was another reform pope, who only held the office for about a year, Victor III. Borsa had refused to back Victor, for some stupid reason. And instead, Victor had found support in the form of Jordan of Capua, who had helped him briefly seize control of portions of Rome. So when Victor died, Urban didn't seem to immediately trust Borsa the same way Gregory had trusted Giscar. Instead, Urban went to who he rightfully assumed was the true power in the Oatville clan. Borsa and Bohemond's uncle Roger in Sicily, 
Urban traveled to Sicily pretty much immediately after his acclamation as Pope, and shortly after, with Roger's help, Urban actually temporarily seized control of nearly the entire city of Rome, long enough for him to be officially consecrated as Pope at least. But Urban was soon ejected from the city, and spent the next few years moving around mostly southern Italy. Urban seems to have wanted to ensure that Borsa and Bohemond were getting along. He might have been asked to do so by their uncle Roger. It was, after all, in everyone's interest to make sure southern Italy stayed under Oatville control. Just to the north, the German emperor, Henry IV, was duking it out with his cousin, la Gran Contessa, Matilde di Canossa. If he could sway some of the minor nobles in southern Italy away from Oatville control, Urban could kiss goodbye to Rome and Roger could easily gain a hostile German outpost on his doorstep. In 1089, Urban traveled to Bari and met with Bohemann personally. Then he held a synod in Melfi, a key city of Borses, who Urban then also met with in person. Notably, he invested Roger Borsa as a papal vassal, the same role his father had held. Bohemann was there when Urban presented the young duke with papal banners, affirming his holy mission and whatever bullshit he got up to. It's clear to see that the Oatvilles were still plugged into the reformed papacy goings-ons. So despite no clear indication, it's a real stretch of the imagination to think that in 1095, when the Pope decided to make plans for a fun little jaunt to Jerusalem, he wouldn't reach out to his own vassals. Vassals with experience invading Muslim territory, and dealing with Greeks. Now, actually, there's a possible reason. If Urban was acting at the behest of Alexios Komnenos, maybe the Roman Emperor had asked Urban to exclude the Normans, who'd been invaders in his empire just a decade earlier. But that doesn't really hold up to close scrutiny either. Bohemond and Borsa's brother, Guy, was by this point a Byzantine aristocrat, a trusted servant of the Emperor. Alexios didn't give a fuck about hiring former enemies. He actually seemed to prefer it. The old adage of keep your enemies closer was something that would have resonated with Alexios. Still, we don't have any direct evidence that Bohemond heard about the crusade, from Urban or Alexios. We actually have no idea what he was doing in 1095, when Urban made his little speech. Here's what we do have. In 1096, the city of Amalfi rebelled against Roger Borsa. We've talked about Amalfi before. They had once been a Byzantine outpost. Over the centuries, they'd become more and more independent and more and more focused on maritime trade, particularly with the Muslims of Sicily and Egypt, and for a time with the city of Antioch, especially when it was under the control of the Armenian Filaretos Prochamios. However, Amalfi had been conquered by Giscar in 1073, but it seems to have retained an independent spirit. I'll let Geoffrey Malaterra pick up the story here. Quote, Duke Roger Borsa, still young and suspecting no evil from anyone, but rather judging the hearts of others by the purity of his own heart, believed that the Lombards were as faithful to him as were the Normans. After all, he was himself part Lombard on his mother's side. Aware of no ill feelings on the part of the Lombards towards our people, the Duke delegated his fortresses to their care no differently than he did to the Normans. When he did this in Amalfi, the citizens were able to make use of the city and the fortress which Robert Giscar had constructed for controlling their perfidy, as they saw fit. Thus, they had the means to exercise treachery. Specifically, they sought to shake off the yoke of our own people and of the duke, because he was the one who had carried out our law. 
they not only refused to provide the tribute and service that had been agreed upon, but arrogantly denied the duke access to the city, and forced all of those who were faithful to him to leave. Seeing such an injury inflicted upon him, the duke came to regret, albeit much too late, the trust that he had placed in the Lombards. He asked the count and the rest of his vassals for advice on how to subject the people of Amalfi, agreeing to hand over half of his city to his uncle, the count, who had come most attentively to his assistance, if he were able to subjugate it. Roger assembled his fleet and cavalry, as well as many foot soldiers from all over Apulia and Calabria, and hastened to Amalfi in the year of the Incarnation of the Lord, 1096. With the advice and assistance of the Count, the Duke besieged the city from all sides, girding it with a belt of ships on the sea and prudently placing his cavalry and foot soldiers along the ride of the surrounding hills. Thus oppressing the city, we believe that they would have succeeded if they had not been prevented by an unfortunate turn of events, which we will now relate. Bohemond had also been summoned by the Duke, and he did come, feigning a willingness to offer assistance. But as it turned out, he was more of a hindrance than a help to his brother. Though we do not believe that was his intention. For in the same year, as the result of an edict by Pope Urban, there was a most fervent expedition to Jerusalem from all over. Bohemond, who had previously invaded Romania in the company of his father, was always looking for ways to subject that region to his authority. Seeing the great multitude hastening there by way of Apulia, and realizing that they had no leader, he joined himself to them and sought to make himself the commander of the army. He then placed the symbol of the expedition, that is, a cross, on his clothes. The war-oriented young men of the dukes and counts' armies, attracted by the novelty of the thing, as is customary for those of such a young age, hurried eagerly to Bohemond, once they had seen his cross and been summoned by him to participate. After taking up their own crosses, they were obliged by a vow not to direct their attention anymore to lands held by Christians, but to invade pagan lands without delay. The duke and the count, seeing the greater part of their armies lost to them in this way, reluctantly dissolved their siege of Amalfi. Thus the city, which had been vexed by this siege almost to the point of surrender, was liberated as a result of this misfortune. The citizens of Amalfi, freed from the siege, were overjoyed. The duke withdrew to Apulia, and the count returned to Sicily. Bohemond crossed the sea. Next time on History of the Ultramare, Bohemond of Tarento crosses the sea, but not alone. Like all the other Oatmeals, he will choose to bring with him an often rebellious younger family member as his junior, his nephew Tancred, as the two head back to the Roman Empire, passing through the same towns Bohemond had been laying waste to just 10 years earlier. I'm sure it will go splendidly. Splendidly.